0: Welcome to Project Geospatial. I'm Adam Simmons, and I'm here with Daniela Moody from Ursa Space Systems. As a follow-up to the Geoent Symposium uh, that was at on San Antonio, Texas, uh, and Danielle is going to tell us about Ursa Systems a little, a little bit about what they're uh, doing with uh, some of the projects and services, and, and what kind of what direction you're taking the business these days, right? Uh, go ahead, Daniela. Tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about Ursa.
1: Thank you, Adam. So, I'm Daniela Moody. I am the VP of Engineering at URSA Space System. Bring synthetic aperture radar, SAR data, uh, to the market. And that was part of the reason we attended GON. There is a number of um, evolving applications across the commercial and government space that are greatly benefiting from the application of SAR data. And we are uh, at the forefront, I would say, in the United States and in many ways global with that data and leveraging it for enhanced geospatial applications. So think decision-driving insights that can be uniquely derived from a data set that allows you to see the Earth, uh, the Earth's surface day in, day out, all weather, through clouds, um, and Think about the applications that you can get to having that level of persistency.
0: And when you, what you're describing is actually the capabilities of a radar imagery, right? Where what Earth is focused around, correct?
1: Correct. And so a number of our products started around the energy market vertical. Those were really focused on say monitoring the level of oil fills into tank and uh, terminals across the globe. That has been a very successful product as was our first product and we currently monitor uh, 10,000 plus tanks and 150 sites across the world. Uh, those are obviously driving a lot of the uh, oil and gas supply chain across the globe. And because of that, we unique ways of consistently and reliably measuring those um, those volumes uh, on a weekly basis. So the only solution and the only option to do that is really with SAR data. So in doing that, we've had to really understand and apply SAR um, data in a way that has never been done before, and also then subsequently educate the market in terms of what could be done with SAR The reason that's, um, you know, is correctly put it as a capability of the SAR data, it's not, it's um, It's a user experience that we seek to transform. SAR data is uh, BC to look at. It is not pretty in its natural raw form. And it's primarily because the images that we are used to seeing from, European Space Agency or other um, SAR users are formed images. So they've done things to the recorded signal the the received signal from the Earth's surface to make it look like an image, something that us as humans can appreciate and relate to. But in its natural form, it is really a set of RF measurements that are pinged, if you will, or or collected with a series of uh, pings or bursts. Uh, and based on that return path is um, is how that information is now created or crafted into a formation uh, image.
0: So uh, uh, that has
1: been a long process for us to learn. Just a quick
0: question uh, to clarify: Does Ursa have any satellites, or do you get the that the radar imagery from other folks?
1: So that is actually part of our company's makeup and DNA. Originally, when the company was founded, which was several years back. Um, Adam Mayer, who's our uh, CEO, had a dream to build hardware and put a uh, natural constellation of CubeSat. Well, it quickly became apparent after a couple of years in the business that uh, we did not need more hardware in space collecting in the SAR band switch, um, which was a very, take a, take a step back and say, uh, we have a lot of hardware. There's a, There's been significant investment in the hardware SAR industry. And these are called, you know, at this point, they pride private satellites. They're very difficult to do. It's not like you put a camera in space. You have to put an antenna in space with massive amounts of processing on the ground. So the shift has become let's leverage that virtual constellation um, of all these other star providers that are uh, globally distributed uh, and use them as a backdrop for doing our software platform or virtual constellation to provide these analytics so the way the business model shifted for us was going from we're going to make our own satellites to let's have partnerships with all the SAR providers out there and use that data so that we actually end up having daily revisits if necessary over a particular area or have um ability to task or collect from various uh, SAR partners that normally would not interact or work with together. So at this point, we are the only provider in the United States and um, to a great extent actually globally that hacks a constellation uh, that spans pretty much um, all the SAR providers with, with a couple of exceptions out there. So it does provide a an enhance. If you think of the virtual constellation as a deployed assets covering the earth, it does provide increased resiliency and uh, coverage and higher cadence across a number of different SAR bands across the globe all the time. And that's been an extremely successful paradigm shift. I would say that we've we've taken and that's um, that's what's been driving the business. Now it was hard to um, to get from we're not going to build hardware, but we're actually going to process all these uh, virtual constellation sensors into a consistent fashion. And thats that's been part of the IRSA investment is to actually get to common analytics that are actually derived from very disparate sources of data to some extent, but that all have something in common and that they're X-band, for example, collections of SAR
0: data. So back at the GEOINT symposium, what was the uh, latest and greatest stuff that you were showing there?
1: Uh, so if, uh, if it'd be okay, I would love to show my screen.
0: Yeah, go for it. Just go ahead and share it. And let me know when you're ready.
1: And show some of these awesome videos, um, that my team was working on. So some of the things we were talking about, actually, um, you said to wait till. Yeah, go ahead. We ready for.
0: Yeah, we're ready. Go okay. for it.
1: So at Geo, and what we're discussing is our new um, product, if you will, or uh, offering to, to, um, to the geospatial intelligence market, which was the Earth's So this is an interactive and dynamic 4D model of the planet. Uh, we have a number of key insights that we can derive from SAR data, things like um, dynamic motion compensation, tracking of moving objects, and like I said, this persistent view into everything we do. So those are some of the things we're discussing at geowind. And then part of our uh, commercial offering was the energy analytics suite, which uh, I think we can all agree has uh, significant implications to national security or the energy security nexus. And part of those offered, uh, offerings were things like global oil storage, which I mentioned, and newer developments into overall supply chain monitoring for oil and gas uh, infrastructure construction and so forth. Uh, the one unique piece that we showed at GeoEnd was really um, – and I'd like to talk about this video a little bit – was how we were able to transform the user experience with SAR. So what you've seen is a change from an EO uh, base map to a SAR-draped 3D rendering. The key pieces with SAR data is this is a complex data stream. is It's technically four-dimensional if we add the time component to it. And our ability to process, visualize, and extract information from 3D SAR data is, I think, what makes us unique in that sense. Hold on. So, so are you are, seeing, you
0: are you extracting? Are you actually creating the 3D models from SAR? Uh,
1: so this is actual SAR data. Uh, what you see in that grainy looking pixel data. What yeah, you yeah, see it's is star, clearly are um those are model tanks that we put on top to highlight where things are and compare or drape, if you will, the SAR imagery over the 3D model. These are actually some of the partnerships we, uh, we're we exploring now with some of the 3D model uh, companies out there, uh, companies like Rikon and others. But, yeah, we are we are creating some of the 3D models for the objects, not for the surface. Uh, this is an example of our customers go through the data portal but really, if we go to the um, if we go back to the three-dimensional views, the um, some of the really key things, these example videos. so this is think of it this way. Nobody really prefers looking at the grainy imagery of SAR data. This is a, a work that we did with RICON, and it was part of a work we we started for National Geographic. They were having a big expedition going into Everest to map the Kumba Ice Falls. This was a, a, as everybody's familiar with that area, it's been a tragic place for many, many climbers' deaths. And a lot of the, the theories that the ice fall and the glacier is changing significantly um, due to the climate change and the, the, the temperature changes in the region. So um, part of what we wanted to show here is a change detection uh, that's actually done in almost real time And what you see towards the end of the glacier are those red uh, fled or blue new changes, places where the glacier is uh, is moving. And we can track things like uh, disparate velocities in in the glacier and outside the glacier. But this is just one example of seeing SAR as it natively is in three dimensions. So this was a partnership we announced that went with RICON to use their three dimensional models and drape or show near real-time renderings of SAR acquisitions um, over the same model. So think here uh, possible model, model updates or just a way to, to showcase some of the changes in a way that's more um, appreciated, I would say, by by, a, by an analyst. So what you saw there was, uh, again, another 3D model with SAR draping over uh Panyang. And this is an example in a maritime environment where we, uh, we monitor, for example, the port of Zushan to look at, uh, we have a number of. We can also do these three D models of changes on a you know weekly, monthly basis if needed. And what you see are changes in ports or perhaps docking areas for the ships and so forth. So this is um, these are just some of the visuals that we have found extremely useful to share with um, with customers, especially folks that don't know um, enough about SAR data because it brings it into that geospatial context that we all prefer. And it does drive um, the customer trust in our in, in our insights much higher when they actually see and can for themselves verify the change that we're measuring and how. What we find finding in our regular is most customers do not really want to see, for example, the exact measurement or where we assess the uh, oil fill in a particular oil storage tank to be. They just want the rolled up numbers and they want those to be extremely accurate. So part of what we've had to do was improve our entire processing workflow from um, understanding the formed image, understanding the complex data, measuring every site, every location, whether it is for a well monitoring activity or an oil storage fill, and then start providing those roll up aggregates consistently with with a particular cadence, whether it's
0: daily or weekly monitoring. Can you give an example? Uh, can you ex- give an example of what type of uh, of the measurements that you take? Uh, can you give an example of what type of question you're answering yeah, for your customer? Yeah,
1: uh, So, for example, for the oil. Uh, For our customers, for example, they have, uh, and these are, I'm happy to show the screen if necessary, but just in a nutshell, some of the things that they are are interested in are oil storage, um, draws or builds or directionality, if you would, of change on a weekly basis in particular pads. Uh, So that's uh, in, in Cushing, for example, Cushing, Oklahoma is one of the main areas that is of interest to a number of traders, a number of, um, hedge fund traders, commodity movers, and so forth. So it is it is known that we have, have one of our investors, uh, they are the ones that are also really interested, for example, in keeping track of these numbers on a regular basis. So the numbers that they might want is um, a Cushing number, for example, on a weekly basis. Now, one of our advantages is because we can test the SAR data and make the measurements, um, we have automated uh code right now that one of these tanks to measure the exact uh, level of the oil compared to last week's and get that um, final API number if you will. Cushing this week is posting a draw or a build of uh, X uh, thousand barrels or million barrels and the advantage that we have there is that we are able to provide this measurement ahead of the AI measurement that comes out. That's sort of a it's everybody understands it's not perfect. There are a lot of caveats in the AI measurements, but it is the benchmark number that um, any company dealing with oil storage uh, wants to know and see how
0: you can. So, so what kind of time frame you're looking at from
1: customers want?
0: Yeah. So, so what kind of time frame you looking at from arrival of the imagery to processing and delivery of the answers to your customers?
1: Uh, minutes to hours and the only reason I'm saying hours so for the algorithm itself it's um, that's part is extremely fast what we also have at URSA are I would say really rigorous steps where we have our own trained energy oil and SAR so analysts going through the results especially if there's a concern or a change in tread that, is, uh, that needs to be explored a little bit more and double checked uh, what we also do is sometimes verify with multiple imagery Over an area to to ensure that we have we have the best form image taken measurements uh, that are consistent with what we see from from other sources, but generally it's it's a rapid process and then what happens is there is an automated API feed that goes out uh, posting our build or draw uh, for the week and that right now happens on a Monday, and that is ahead of the EIA uh, formal API and um, other post. Um, posted draws or builds. So those are for Cushing. Now, what we also do is use the exact same process to measure similarly individual tank fill and then roll it up into aggregates at various other terminals across the globe.
0: Awesome. Uh, is there anything else that you want to talk about, uh, highlight about URSA before uh, we move, uh, before right. I get any
1: yeah, I think one of the, the key uh, pieces that made me very excited to be at our and frankly, um, working with the amazing team that we have, at least in engineering, um, the, the engineering team that I know, which is which is a, a large fraction of the company, is really the ability to work with a very diverse group of people. Um, we've come from uh, various different backgrounds and have come together to, to really huddle, for lack of better words, around this concept of using SAR data for new things. And what to me is very exciting right now is the direction in which we're moving as a company to just the current products that we have and increase, if you will, um, footprint and coverage or historical data, but also explore what else uh, we can do with SAR data. And that's been really uh, one of the most exciting questions we've been asking in the last couple of months. Knowing what we know now about SAR data and its capabilities, we truly believe is the key to unlocking a whole new set of capabilities for the remote sensing um, market in general, be that commercial or government. Um, and part of that has been a market adoption of SAR data. Part of that has been uh, with SAR data, it's big, it's massive. Uh, the part of it is also, we don't really know what we can do with SAR data. And that I feel is one of the questions we are now focusing on answering it or so. you know, It's one of these, imagine what you could do if you had this kind of coverage and are able to track um, receding glaciers in Everest or track uh, illegal deforestation in the Amazon. And the reason I'm bringing deforestation up, um, that area is covered by clouds half the year. You have no hope of really getting a weekly, even monthly sense of what's happening unless you have a source of imagery. So those are the kinds of what we're exploring
0: right now. So would you say so electro optical imagery is typically the uh, what people consumers know, what they see on Google Earth or Google Maps or or something else. Right. And uh, I think uh, most folks get their perspective of what imagery does or even from even even from a business standpoint, uh, what they see is what they can get. You know what they process, but in truth, the rest of the spectrum offers a whole lot more of actually providing uh, ideal measurements to provide answers more than actually the uh, uh, you know the, the the visible light spectrum. So, uh, it's, so it's really fascinating to dive into the SAR, but it's more interesting as well to see as we, we the more and more sensors come online. Um, You know, what what kind of uses can be brought out of them. But you're right. It's a cultural change as we we have to uh, make people aware what the potential can be from a business case. How are you going to convince an investor or a hedge fund that they want to buy SAR imagery when they look at a SAR image? And it's one of the ugliest things I've ever seen, right? So... Um, right. So, so you got kind of to train them. It's like no, it's not what you see with your eyes. It's what we're actually measuring on the ground. You know, stuff like that.
1: Yeah, and that's that's absolutely the case. Both for you know commercial and government customers, I would say that the knowledge of SAR data is probably um, more prevalent on the on the government side, just because there's been exposure to those kind of sensors and um, and uh, training earlier. But what we see now on the commercial side, again, they do not want to buy the SAR images if they can trust that the analytics are correct. And for most of the customers we talk to, it is very obvious when they have an image from the same day over an area that they're really interested in monitoring and you have the electro-optical on one side that's clouded and the same day acquisition from SAR data clears day. Now, SAR data may not tell you how green a particular field is or whether um, uh, I'm trying to think of some examples that multi-spectral type imagery is uniquely capable of providing, but things like construction, um, Activity indicators, extent of some activity, or um, planting of new new forests or deforestation, with with um, with SAR data. So what we're at is not only understanding SAR data differently, but also exploring this bleeding edge of fusion capabilities between SAR and other sources of insight to provide that context that we actually subconsciously use all the time to figure out what is happening in the region, right? We need the geospatial context. We possibly need electro-optical imagery that may not be dynamic or current, but just to give us an idea where we're looking. We may need elevation data. We may need slope data. And finally, we may need these timely, high-frequency SAR sensors to tell us what is changing, but at least we can put the change into a context that makes sense to us. And it's easier to say, the decision should be this. And it's that decision that our customers want to buy. It's not the... Raw SAR data is the qualified, accurate decision that they can trust that would empower their business, whichever that business may be.
0: Awesome. Can you talk a little bit more about your background and involvement with Ursa? Your, your, you know, what your experience is uh, with imagery and how you got where you are with the company?
1: Sure. So I uh, received my PhD in 2012 from the University of Maryland College Park that was uh, focused on RF target embedded detection. It was a fascinating thesis to me because it really involved taking some of the emerging concepts in artificial intelligence and machine learning and applying them to a, a very unique um, type of data, I would say, which is on-orbit RF sensing. The, um, I did most of my thesis at Los Alamos National Laboratory, um, actually all my thesis work, and I continue working at uh, Atlanta for almost nine years. After getting my thesis. Um, but it was a really, I realized that there's a lot of discoveries still to be uh, made at this border or a boundary between um, sensing modalities. So, one of the things I was doing at LANO for, uh, for those years was really applying machine learning, AI, computer vision techniques to your non traditional imaging modes or sensing modes. I spent a lot of time on RF. That's been my passion. Extended some of those concepts to multispectral imagery, uh, generative changes in the Arctic. I found that very fascinating. Um, and it was, it was that which led me then to go to um, first Descartes Labs, which is another startup. And then after a three-year stint at Descartes Labs, I moved on to URSA again to come back to my first love, which was RF imagery. Now, I have started URSA as Director of Machine Learning, and that was fabulous. Um, we had a small team and we were having fun. And then I transitioned into the VP of engineering. Now the team is larger. It's uh, much more uh, diverse, both spatially, uh, skill-wise, experience-wise, as well as um, thought process-wise. And I find that to be one of the uh, hugest assets, I would say, of working at URSA, Uh, the diversity in um, thinking ways and the flow that we can achieve as a team when we set our mind to create a new product. So with that come challenges as well. We are distributed. Uh, a lot of half the team is remote. So we have to really embrace um, video conferencing and have this appreciation that sometimes um, things are not conveyed virtually. But I would say we overcome that rather well. And then we frequently have um we have to. We've had to adopt a number of processes internally to make us as effective and productive as we are. But that's been a bit of my background. So I'm now really excited about growing my team and developing uh, the team that we have into being the best they can be, and creating many, many cool things for us. We um, we still stay technically at the uh, bleeding edge of our expertise, uh, trying to get out to calm, get exposure, uh, present where we can, and and stay active and um, retain that high degree of expertise in our core areas.
0: That's great. So uh, that's that. No, it's amazing how far you've come in your career and you've obviously uh, stayed to what you're passionate about. Is there anything? Uh, what, what kind of advice? And this is going to be my last question before we wrap up. Uh, what kind of advice would you give somebody who's just starting out their career or just uh, figuring out what their career path should be and in, uh, getting into college and really fascinated with uh, with Ursa or your position within uh, the career that you've taken uh, career path that you've taken?
1: Actually, uh, that is a great question, and the the thing that comes to mind is the actual words I learned from my. Um, one of my PhD advisors, his name is Dr. Steve Mrabi. He's also at, um, he's a National Geographic right now. But he told me two things. And this was early in my thesis. One was uh, find something you love doing, and then you don't have to work a day in your life. So um, I found that extremely insightful. And part two was more of his realistic approach to life, which was, I don't get to save the world as remote sensing and scientists, but we, you know, we sometimes just get to watch it die, which was a it was a depressing thought. It was during our climate change Arctic monitoring project. But I would say my advice out of that has been really finding something you're passionate about, and find a group of. There's always a group of people you can explore and pursue your technical passions uh, with, and um, folks and environments that will believe in what you're trying to build and empower you to grow that way. I would say um, to me, a life that's lived without technical passion is not worth, you know, working. I, I understand that sometimes everybody has to make choices, but I think it's important to make choices that align your personal goals, your personal likes, and um, and uh, skills with the work environment that you create for yourself. And sometimes hard choices have to be made. Uh, that is if a particular career path takes you in an area that is actually further and further removed from who you want to be and who you wanted to be as you grew up, you know, sometimes it's, it's difficult, but those choices have to be made and think of it as a realignment of your priorities. And, you know, what's important to you it might be work life balance or maybe certain achievements in your career. And to me, those are all considerations that are individuals. Um, and it's something that we, you know, I, I love tracking and discussing with my team better. I think it's absolutely empowering to have um, managers and leaders in the company that believe in the individual and their goal is to align individual goals with company goals so that everybody can thrive and succeed. So there is this concept um, that I really like, which is being invested in each other's success. And my advice to a young person starting in their career would be to find um, folks that are differently minded than you possibly, but they have the same approach to Career and development, which is we're investing in each other's success, and there shouldn't be a you know race for whoever gets uh, to be top dog. It's more they we all have to succeed, and the only way to succeed is really um, it's back to game theory, which we learn from economics. We succeed as a group, or we fail as a group, and I think that
0: uh, uh,
1: that's how we're trying to do uh, things at RSA.
0: Yeah, it's great advice. Uh, And uh, no, thanks for the conversation and learning a lot more about URSA and even yourself. So um, I think that's going to be it for us for the show. Uh, Thanks for joining me, Daniela. Thank you, Adam. (laughs) Uh, Always a pleasure. Yep. And once again, my name is Adam Simmons with Project Geospatial, and uh, we'll see you next time. We hope you've enjoyed our podcast focused on the geospatial industry, discussing geospatial news, best practices, and having guest speakers on related to the latest industry projects. You can contribute to our continued operation through anchor.fm forward slash project geo forward slash support and www.patreon.com forward slash project geospatial. Your contribution keeps our website running and funds our participation to cover conferences on various events beyond the geo and symposium. If you represent a company in the industry and would like to talk about your product or service on the show, please reach out to us. Thanks for listening. You can find out all of our information on ProjectGeospatial.com.